May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Several years ago, I was at a, a conference for ministers, and during the lunch break, we were sitting around the tables, and um, students and ministers talking among ourselves, and for some reason, the topic turned to the Middle East, and we began to talk about Middle Eastern politics and the relationship between uh, Christians and Muslims in that part of the world, and how Christianity was doing in that part of the world, and we were all adding our two cents. There was a man seated next to me, listening to all this, and, and then he said, well, uh, I used to live in the Middle East, and um, lived there for many, many years, and I lived in the villages with the people, and learned their languages. And then he said, and I taught in Beirut, in Cairo. And then, after he said this, to kind of establish his credentials, I stopped talking and started listening. Because here was somebody much greater than I was in terms of his knowledge. And uh, come to find out, he was a great scholar in the Middle East and relationships between Christians and Muslims and Middle East culture. But I wonder if you've felt that at some point or another, the, 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 the sense of being exposed, the fear of being exposed in the presence of someone greater. Well, God is infinitely greater than we are in every moral quality. Holiness, purity, righteousness, Justice, mercy, love. God is infinitely greater than us. And in our Old Testament reading from Exodus 12, He is getting ready to pass through Egypt. This is the tenth and final plague. It's the terrible plague of the death of the firstborn of Egypt. This is the only plague that comes directly from God's presence. The other plagues came from God, but came through Moses and Aaron. But here, God himself is going to come. His presence is going to pass through Egypt. And that's a problem. That's a problem not just for the Egyptians, but for the Israelites. The presence of a perfectly holy and just God is a problem for all people because all have sinned. So it's a problem for Egypt. It's a problem for Israel. It would be a problem for America, Canada, Africa, all over the world. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. A just judge is not going to let a convicted criminal go free. Or that judge would not be a just judge. And God is a just judge. And, and it's in his very nature to be opposed 
to sin. In the very nature of God, in His holiness, in His justice, to be opposed to sin. I, I've used this illustration before, but when I was in college, I went to a concert of this uh, virtuoso guitar player, and there were several of us in our group who were studying music, and one of these people in the group was a guy named Bernie. And Bernie was probably the best musician or one of the best musicians on campus. And uh, he had perfect pitch. So we get to the concert and we're sitting down. And as soon as this guitar player started playing, Bernie started squirming. Because he was out of tune just a smidge. I couldn't hear it. But Bernie could hear it right away. And he was not comfortable. And as soon as he started squirming, he said under his breath, he's out of tune. And the guitar player stopped because he knew he was out of tune as well. The, the rest of us, most of us in that concert hall didn't recognize it, didn't bother us. But these men were attuned to the perfect standard, perfect pitch. And it, and it bothered them. That, that's how it is with God and sin. Sin is, you could say... Being out of harmony with his standard of holiness and righteousness. And I think that the closer we get to God through life, the more we grow in holiness, the more sensitive we are to sin. Even in our own lives, especially it should be in our own lives. But we're never going to be as sensitive to sin or bothered by it as God is. It's in his nature. To be opposed to it. And so that's why it's a problem for a holy God to pass through Egypt. Not just for the Egyptians, but for the Israelites. That's why it's a fearful thing for God to come. One commentator said, maybe we can kind of get a feel for this sense of dread at the coming of God. If we think about the second coming of Christ, we say every week that we believe that Christ will come again as the judge of the living and the dead. And so this commentator said, well, think about that. Until that takes place, people will have the option of considering many other things to be their highest priority. You know, whether it's political issues or social issues or their own personal issues and goals and priorities, we will be able to consider these things our highest priority. But when Christ comes, everything else is going to dissolve in light of Him. And the single issue of how do I stand with Him who's come. The living God is here. I wonder if you've thought about that lately with the turn of a new calendar, a new year. Every day is a day closer for us, a day closer to standing before a holy God. And if we, if we believe that, that, that clarifies things, doesn't it? I know I need to let that truth clarify my own sense of priorities and my decision-making, standing before a holy God. 
That is a problem. But the good news, the great news, the, the astounding news of the gospel is that God provides a way for us to stand in his presence without his judgment falling upon us. And that's what we see here. And the way is by sacrifice. By sacrifice. That is the way, that is the means by which God has provided an unholy people to be in his holy presence. It's by sacrifice. You see that at verse 23. The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. Uh-oh. God's going to be here. And when he sees the blood, the blood of the Passover lamb, on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the house to strike you. They were saved by the blood of a sacrifice, the sacrifice of a lamb. You might ask, well, why? <laughs> why is the sacrifice necessary? Uh, what, what does it really mean? What does it stand for? And here's the key. The Passover lamb was a substitute. The Passover lamb stood in the place. You remember, as I said, that this last tenth plague was uh, the death of the firstborn. The firstborn of Egypt. It was a terrible plague. Um, when you think about it. It's an awful thing that happened, a, a terrible judgment. And we ask why, why would God send such a judgment? And we can say, who has the mind of God? Who can judge God? But there might be something here that early in the book of Exodus, right at the very beginning, the Pharaohs, the Pharaoh had killed the sons of Israel. Remember that. And so there might be something here in this judgment about retribution. God sends this, this terrible plague. The tenth plague. So that Pharaoh who has disobeyed God, who has not relented, is finally going to relent and let the people go. This is what it took. But my point is, when God sends a tidal wave of judgment, everyone tainted with sin could be swept away. Even the firstborn of Israel. Even the firstborn of Israel. So, the Passover lamb is a substitute for the sons of Israel. The Passover lamb was a male lamb. A son without blemish. The Passover lamb died so the sons of Israel didn't have to die. We can take this a step further. In Exodus 4.22, God calls Israel, my firstborn son. Israel as a whole, God refers to as his firstborn, his privileged children, his protected children. And he says, Moses, tell Pharaoh to let my firstborn son go. Israel as a whole is God's firstborn. So this lamb is a substitute. Died so they could live. Now some people today, they hear this talk about sacrifice, it's like... That says, this is so primitive. This is so superstitious. This is, 
This has nothing to do with the modern world that we're in today. So we can just kind of dismiss this as primitive and retrograde. But that's really ignoring a reality that has been throughout all cultures and societies and even is with us today. And that is, in order for societies to exist, there has to be sacrifice. Think about war. War is the sacrifice. A select few of a population so that the whole population doesn't have to go fight and die. A select few is willing to go and do that. To sacrifice even their very life if they have to. So that the rest can live. See, this principle is just part of it's a deep part of life. In order for there to be life, there has to be sacrifice. And, and here what we see is God himself providing means by way of sacrifice so that they, the people of God, could live. And I hope now you see the significance of John the Baptist's words. This is where I'm getting at. I was going to just start there with John the Baptist, but I figured we have to go back here to the Old Testament reading to really understand the significance of this title of Jesus. The Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Old Testament sacrifices point to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. He became your Passover Lamb. At the cross. Your substitute. My substitute. At the cross. We often talk about the cross as a revelation of the love of God. And that is certainly true. I say this all the time and I will always say it. If you doubt God loves you, look to the cross. Whenever you doubt the love of God, the care of God for you, look to the cross. He demonstrated his love to you in there, in that. So that is right. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave. The cross reveals the love of God. But there's something else. There's another dimension that we often forget about. And this sense, it's that there has to be this sacrifice to satisfy something of the justice of God. It's like if uh, somebody were to say, I'm going to go down to this bridge down there that crosses St. Louis County into St. Louis, uh, St. Charles County. And I'm going to demonstrate my love for humanity by flinging myself off this bridge. And they did it. You might say, well, that certainly proved that he loved people. What good did it do? The demonstration of love, but what, what real good did it do? It really accomplished nothing but the self-sacrifice of Jesus. You see, the God-man, the spotless lamb, our substitute taking our judgment, experiencing as he did on the cross, God-forsakenness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we don't have to experience that taking our judgment, that accomplished something. That accomplished something. There's a horizontal dimension to the cross, 
there's this vertical dimension. It accomplished something. It, it satisfied God's justice. Sin was punished so we could be in God's presence. Jesus is a sacrifice. The, the Lamb of God. So how can we and how should we respond to this? A couple of points as I draw to a close here. A couple of points. How we respond to the sacrifice that God has provided. Well, look at what happened here with the people of Israel. Number one, they put their faith in this promise, sacrifice. They exercised this faith. They exercised faith in this promised sacrifice when they, they killed the Passover lamb. That was an act of faith. Now, maybe they struggled with the faith and thought, is this really going to work? But they exercised faith in killing the Passover lamb. They exercised, exercised faith when they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. They, they, they obeyed this, this word. And, and it says that in verse 28, the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. They believed God's word about this sacrifice. And perhaps today you need to believe this today. Maybe you need to remind yourself of this. Maybe you be, need to be renewed in your faith of God's provision for you. And remind yourself that our standing with God is not based on our performance. It's based on what He has provided at the cross. The blood of the Lamb. Maybe that's a very good reminder this time of year. Because this time of year, I don't know about you, I've set up some goals. I have some plans I want to be more self-disciplined and, and discipline is part of the Christian life, but it's not the basis of our acceptance with God. There are commitments, there are goals, there's things that I want to accomplish. What about you this year? And it's good to have that. But we can set ourselves up for disappointment and even self-condemnation if we base our worth on our performance instead of God's provision. Somebody wrote, I'm going to pray more. This year, I'm going to share my faith with friends and at work. I'm going to read my Bible from Genesis to the maps in the back this year. That's my commitment. I'm going to trust God without wavering. And then the struggle begins, right? The struggle begins. The struggle with failure and sin and wobbly faith and disappointment. And then that can lead to self-condemnation. Well, maybe God can't use me. Uh, uh, maybe God doesn't really love me. Maybe this isn't true for me. Friends, in those times of doubt and despair and self-condemnation, take your eyes off your failures, what you failed to do, and put your eyes on what God has done at the cross. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, takes away your sin, and takes away my sin. So we should exercise faith in this promise, the promise of this provision, and believe it. And second, we should regularly celebrate this sacrifice. And that's what we see here in Exodus 12. This is the institution of the Passover. Jews today, of course, celebrate this every year. And this is what Moses 
is calling the people of God to do by the word of God. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. This is something that you need to do year after year after year and your children will see it. And they'll say, what is this about? And then that will give you a chance to say, we are a people who live because of the sacrifice that God has provided. We were saved because something had to die. The only reason we were spared the judgment of God is the mercy of God. And as Christians, we celebrate this each Sunday, don't we? We celebrate our Passover lamb. Christ is our Passover lamb. We say that in our liturgy. And by celebrating the Lord's Supper, by celebrating the Eucharist each Sunday, we are reminded that we have life. We have salvation. We have the hope of eternal life because the Lamb of God took our place. Not because we're smarter or more moral, or better than our unbelieving neighbors, but because of God's mercy. We want them to know that mercy as well. We celebrate it regularly, and when we do, when we celebrate it regularly and rightly, which means faith in Christ, it forms us into a humble and grateful people. When they heard this, it says they bowed their heads, humility, and worship. Gratitude for what God has provided. I end on a poem, a, select, a, a, a section from a selection from George Herbert's poem on love. The great Anglican poet here in this poem of love pictures love as inviting him in to his house. Love is in offering an invitation to come and feast and come and eat. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. He did not feel worthy to enter into love's house, into the house of God. And then he says, love speaks. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame, who bore the blame for your sin? Don't you know who bore the blame, my dear? Then I will serve, Herbert answers. Okay, I will serve. You bore the blame. You bore the shame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Because love bore the blame. Let's remember that this morning as we come to the table of our Lord, the great Passover Lamb. Amen. Lord, we do thank you for these truths. We thank you that you provided a way for us to be in your holy presence and that we can celebrate this today and every Lord's Day as we come to receive your grace afresh. May it penetrate our hearts and minds and increase in us greater devotion to you and love toward our neighbor. In Christ's name, for his sake. Amen.